From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. We always think outside in, you know, all the time. And it's very easy when you start growing that you start becoming more internally focused. There's no complacency at all. It's always about, you know, finding the red. What are the things, you know, that can be approved, you know, all the time. Welcome everyone to the Legends of Sales and Marketing. I'm your host, Justin Schreiber, and today I'm joined by Denise Pearson, CMO at Snowflake. Most of us would be very pleased to take one company public, but Denise has done that four times. Along the way, she's learned lessons about what it takes to scale a marketing team fast without compromising quality or impact. Surprisingly, many of the attributes she draws upon to pilot some of tech's most high-flying companies can be traced back to her childhood in Sweden. On today's show, Denise talks about why marketing needs to take 100% ownership and accountability for the pipeline, how to build a great relationship with sales, and what the U.S. can learn from Sweden when it comes to building diverse teams. Let's dive into the conversation. Denise, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here with you, Justin. All right, Denise, I am really excited to get into this discussion. And I wanted to start off and talk a little bit about a very interesting relationship that you had as a young girl with Juicy Fruit Gum. Can you give us a little bit of the backstory behind Juicy Fruit Gum and and why it was so important to you? Okay, so I grew up in Sweden in the 80s, and at that time, we only had public television with no commercials, so half of the fun going to the movies was to watch the commercials. And um, again, that was the only place you could watch commercials in Sweden at that time. And when you're in a cold and dark Sweden, the juicy fruit commercials with the surfers and the sunshine in California definitely made an impression um, on me. And I thought it was really fascinating how you could create this whole lifestyle and this this emotional experience with just um, a chewing gum. And I think that is really what attracted me to advertising and and to marketing. So juicy fruit, the package full of sunshine might be the reason why I'm in marketing today. And um, my big career goal when I was in my early 20s, that was to become a product manager at the CPG company. That was my big dream. But um, I ended up in tech instead and quickly realized that um, tech was a lot more exciting than chewing gum. But uh, my husband and I, we still come early to the movies today to watch the uh, commercials. See all the previews. Yeah. I think that you put your finger on, finger on something fascinating. And it's really what most of us love about marketing is this idea that you can create a whole world that touches on the five senses and ultimately evokes a sense of feeling and an attachment or a bond between that person and the product. Um, that's when pa- marketing is at its most powerful. And I can just see that little girl in the dark movie theater in the cold, you know, northern climes of Sweden 
transported to a beach on Southern California, which by the way, probably did not even exist, was the figment of some marketer's imagination. But that is that is why we love marketing so much because it has the power to do that. Exactly. Okay, so when you weren't in the movie theater watching commercials about juicy fruit gum, I understand that you were off in the wild somewhere hunting down moose. Is that is that actually, can you confirm that? Uh, well, uh, moose hunting was not my, my own hobby and it's certainly not my hobby today. But it's something you do if you live on a farm in, in Sweden and um, add a great deal of contrast in my childhood um, during the week, I attended a French private school in the center of Stockholm. It was a very strict school, you know, with school uniforms and all that. But we also had a farm uh, when I grew up uh, two hours north of Stockholm, where I spent most of my weekends and my vacations. So the weekends on the farm involved everything from harvesting potatoes, very important thing in Sweden. It's the thing that you essentially eat with every meal uh, in Sweden. And it also involved getting up, you know, five in the morning to wait for a moose to show up as well. But I think uh, growing up like this, it really gave me this lifelong love for nature um, being in nature, you know, is a place where, um, I recharge. Um, that's where I get most of my marketing ideas as well, either in, in the, in the nature or out, you know, uh, running. I don't think, yeah, the best ideas, you know, are coming up on, on zoom calls. It really, um, yeah, it really happens somewhere else. So, um, that was a little bit much, but my childhood. You mentioned potatoes. I want to focus on the potato for a minute because I think it brings out such an interesting contrast in cultures and in times. For you, the potato was a vital component of the diet and, and of the income of the economy. In, in California in particular, uh, I know that in many cases, the potato is anathema now. It's the calorie bomb. It represents the, the high-carb diet that so many people are trying to walk away from. And people actually have the luxury in more affluent areas to say, I choose not to eat high carb foods, uh, exactly for the reason that most of the world craves those because they have so many calories in them. So I'm interested in your perspective, having grown up in a place where you had to work hard, you grew on a farm, it was very disciplined and regimented versus a lot of the, the conveniences and luxuries that we have today and that we enjoy. How do you strike a balance between the two? And what are the pros and cons of those different lifestyles that you've led? Yeah. I mean, first of all, when I, when I grew up, uh, both my parents work, like all parents in, in Sweden. In Sweden, there are no stay-home um, you know, parents. Uh, my mom was a teacher. My father was a construct construction engineer. Uh, it was a typical middle-class um, you know, family. You know, I got everything I needed. But if I wanted something extra, that's something I had to work for um, myself. And my father was a type that never took a sick day in his entire life. And my mom always reminded me to never complain. She always said, no one wants to know if you have a headache or anything else. So don't, don't ever complain about anything. And I started working at uh, 13 years old. Uh, in a bookstore. My sister worked there, so she helped me get this uh, job. Initially, I started out um, gift wrapping for the holidays. 
but then I got a job there um, over, over, every weekend. And uh, the thing I learned was that um, if I did a good job, I got more opportunities. At that time, it was about getting more hours, right? You wanted to get more hours because there were a lot of kids competing for those uh, jobs. So doing a good job gave you more opportunities and also having a positive you know, attitude. That also helped bring more opportunities as well. So um, those have been very important lessons for me early on. And I think they've really served me well in my career. It's working hard, having a great attitude. You know, things things are going to go well. Was there a downside to having worked that hard as a child and then on through the rest of your life? I think one thing I missed was um, team sports. I didn't really have time for, for team sports which is something that is so big here in America. Everyone here talks about the team sports, right? They did when they grew up and I didn't have that. So that's something I, I missed. And today I'm extremely involved with my kids' team sports. And I've been coaching my daughter's volleyball team for four years now. And I absolutely um, love it. But also starting working early also helped me to learn what kind of leader, you know, I wanted to be as well, you know, you know, one day when I was 13 years old, um, the owner of the bookstore where I worked, she was not a great leader. Everyone feared, you know, her. And, um, I learned that that's not the person, you know, I want to be. I think that there's definitely a spectrum work on one end, play on the other. And I'm a big subscriber to the fact that you've got to be somewhere in the middle. I think that hard work is a great antidote to many of the excesses that exist in our society because that work teaches appreciation, self-reliance. At the same time, that can be taken to an extreme. And uh, especially with young children, you can find that you kind of take a lot of the joy and the purpose out of life for them. And that's something that continue can continue on through life as well. So that is an art it, to balance those two of work and play. But but ultimately, I think the life that's filled with both is, is the one that's the most satisfying. I often get the question from our um, team members that are early in the career and they, they, they come in when they want to get, you know, career you know, advice. And the one thing I say is that I've never seen anyone doing a, a great job and have a great attitude that haven't been rewarded, you know, for that, right? I've been in tech and doing this for over 25 years now. Haven't seen a single person that haven't been, you know, promoted and have had a great career just based on those two things. You don't even need, you don't need to be the smartest in a person in the room, but um, hard work, great attitude, it will, it will pay off. Yeah. And both of those things, absolutely in your control. So you've lived all over the world. You grew up in Sweden. You're here in the United States now, obviously. What can the United States learn from Sweden and what can Sweden learn from the United States? I think one of the big differences, if you look at Sweden, is that in Sweden, all women work and can have a career and there's essentially no glass ceiling. Uh, all women were working, you know, when I grew up. And the primary reason for that is also that there's access to, to childcare as well. We had, we have great high quality, affordable childcare in Sweden and that makes uh, all the difference. Here in the U.S., uh, childcare is often very financially challenging for most um, families. And uh, when they look at kind of how much they're making, sometimes it makes more sense you know, to, be, to be home um, instead. So since everyone was working and all women were working in Sweden where I grew up, I had really no mental blocks about that. I never really saw myself as a minority 
I didn't see that sort of as a challenge for me uh, in business, you know, in Sweden or women, you know, have a voice and those things. And um, looking at some data today, um, today, Sweden ranks as the country with the highest share of women in tech. More than 50% of everyone in Sweden are in tech are women. So we actually have more women in tech than men in Sweden, which is completely different from um, most other countries. And more than half of the cabinet positions in Sweden are held by women as well. So um, it gives that role model, you know, for everyone else. And role models is, is very, very important for you when you grow up and it kind of helps you make, you know, the choices, you know, for the future as well. As for Sweden learning from the US, um, here, Silicon Valley is all about speed, you know, and urgency. And Sweden is all about consensus in decision-making. And that slows things um, down. Uh, as a leader in the U.S. Uh, and in tech, I mean, you have to make decisions. You have to make decisions you know, quickly. Otherwise, someone else will make the decision faster than you. So um, I hope that with more access to data, I hope that Sweden can get over that consensus decision-making and be able to make decisions based on facts and, and much, uh, much quicker. I want to go back to that point that you made about Sweden and the infrastructure that they had in place to support families, uh, the child care that everyone had access to. I think so many times we look at big challenges like uh, underrepresented groups and we come up with Band-Aid solutions Let's just put a policy in place to hire more of this type of person, not recognizing that there are structural issues that need to be addressed in order to be successful at achieving that metric. Um, Patagonia is a company that I, I think the world of love their products, but I love their culture even more. And I had the opportunity to hear from their chief HR officer who talked about what they did to enfranchise all different groups. Uh, women were particularly important. They have wonderful representation at the executive ranks. They talked about healthcare though, and how, uh, and childcare, and how all of those were a part of the infrastructure. And they said, we wanna make sure that regardless of your family situation, you have an opportunity to come and contribute here. And um, I think it was such a, a profound insight. When we as business leaders are trying to solve problems, Let's get beyond the immediate obvious answer and try to push into the underlying factors that are making the problems and address those factors. I think that's where the leverage really comes. And the other one uh, is, of course, access to education as well. And in most of Europe, access to education is, is free. And uh, in Sweden, you even get paid to go to university. That's a that's a novel concept. Pay to go to the university instead of pay the universities these crazy, crazy amounts. Well, we, uh, we could definitely go into a deep discussion about that. Let's transition, though, and talk about how you got into tech. You, you mentioned briefly uh, your early forays into tech, but I think Genesis was the first company where you really cut your teeth. How'd you get to Genesis and what did you learn while you were there? Well, first of all, in, uh, in between high school and university, I had uh, a gap year. Uh, this was in 1992. There was a big recession all over, over Europe. And the fact that universities are for free, it's quite hard to get into universities um, as well. And I couldn't get into the university um, I wanted at the time. So I took um, a gap year to get some work experience instead. And um, I got a job um, on the finance department at, um, at Commodore Computers, 
the uh, the computer company at that time. And that opened up a whole new world for me. And I realized that tech is the place to be and that chewing gum and consumer marketing maybe wasn't that interesting uh, uh, after all. So um, then I went back to university and um, when I graduated at that time, everybody in Sweden, and I think it was similar here in the U.S., wanted to go and work for one of the big companies. And in Sweden, uh, telecom was big and Ericsson uh, was the place where everyone uh, wanted to go to. But um, I happened to have an eight-year-old older sister than me. And uh, one of her friends uh, convinced me to come and interview for the startup uh, where she was um, working called Genesis. And um, it was a French startup that had um, invented the first automated conferencing service. Back in the days, it's hard for everyone maybe to remember here, but that time you had to call AT&T and schedule a conference call. And there was an operator calling everyone um, to join that meeting. That was back in the 90s. And um, Genesis invented this service where you got your meeting number, I mean, essentially what we're using today, and everyone could automatically join. So it was quite a, a game changer at that time. So um, I joined the company in 1996, and I've been in um, the tech marketing um, startup space you know, ever since. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. You mentioned the gap year that you took in between high school and college. It's an interesting model. My daughter actually, her junior year in college, was contemplating finishing her last year during COVID and said, I don't really want to do that. I want to, I want to be in person. I'm going to take a year off. And she ended up getting a job for a year in tech and marketing. It was a wonderful experience and it actually enhanced her educational experience because it allowed her to see what was happening in the professional world. And suddenly she had context for all of these things that she was learning in the classroom. So I think it's it's kind of a fascinating model for us to explore and perhaps in the States be a little bit more open to is getting meaningful work experience either before or during college to enhance the time that you're actually spending in the classroom. And a big difference here in the U.S. Um, is the internships. I mean, internships are very, very common here and it's a part um, you know, of your education and you get credits for that. That's not the case you know, in Europe. Uh, education in Europe is more academic and I think um, actually U.S. is doing a much better job there in helping um, young people get more work experience. And of course, going to college is a big investment as well. And you rather want to invest in learning something that you actually want to work with in the future as well. So I love um, the internship programs that um, we have here in the U.S. You mentioned Commodore. Commodore was my first introduction to the world of tech. Commodore 64. For those of you that don't know what the 64 stands for it's 64k not 64 megabytes or gigabytes that's how much memory you had to work with and uh we we ran all of our files on cassette tapes with a little cassette tape player that sat on the side i think about that now and, and that was only what 30 35 years ago 
what will we be saying 35 years from now about the technology that we're running today? It just boggles the mind, the rate of change um, of, of technology and how exciting it is to be living at a time when literally the world is being reinvented by the year. I, I can't wait to just see what's going to happen next year within the next, you know, you know, five years. Yeah, I just um, this is an aside, but uh, a friend of mine went to Burning Man and for the grand finale, rather than having fireworks, they had drones and each of the drones was essentially a pixel. And these drones were organized into a three dimensional fireworks display. And it literally looked like a fireworks display. You had the lights and everything but they were taking on all of these different images and pictures in three dimensions and they were spinning and pivoting. And I, I looked at that and, and to me, just that juxtaposition of technology and the wonder of fireworks. And for whatever reason that captured my imagination and I said, wow, what an amazing time it is to be alive and just see these creative minds coming up with these creative applications of technology. And I'm just so excited every day to wake up and and see what new thing has been invented or created or problem has been solved. And the dogs must be very happy too. <laughs> dog friendly. Dog very, friendly. Dog, very dog friendly. All right. So you got to Genesis and you didn't look back. You referred to a formula that you had created or, or, or landed upon as a child, which is great attitude, hard work. I think that served you well at Genesis. Can you talk a little bit about some of the highlights there? Uh, yeah, I mean, also startups gives you so much opportunity to grow. You know, if the company grows, you know, and you do a great job, you're going to grow, you know, also. Uh, so Genesis, uh, this is in 1996. Um, I started as a marketing coordinator in Sweden. Company was growing very rapidly. Uh, I got promoted several times and I ended up becoming the global VP of marketing at the age of uh, 27 and moved to the headquarters in uh, France. Uh, Genesis was a public company at that time. We had over a thousand employees and it was probably the most scary experience I've had in my entire life, I must say. A uh, lot of sleepless uh, nights. I was definitely not prepared you know, for that, but I was committed to not um, fail. Uh, I survived um, at Genesis for, for 12 years. And um, I got a lot of help, you know, from from my colleagues. Um, I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, it was an environment that was very tolerant to making mistakes as well. And I learned from those mistakes. Um, these mistakes I did, they're very helpful, you know, in my job at Snowflake today. I don't do the same mistakes, you know, again. And um, today, when it was it was a hard time in in many ways actually it was it was pretty difficult um many times and and today with anyone on my team members have a hard time today right i say to them congratulations this is fantastic you 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 are you are learning right i congratulating them from going going through some hard times was um when i look back the times where I was learning the most was during the tough times, right? If it's easy, you don't learn, you know, as uh, much. I was at that time, uh, I read every single marketing book there was um, at that time. Uh, at that, there was no, you know, internet or, or webinars that you could, you know, easily 
access um, you know new things and uh, learn things. So it was all about reading books. There for for twenty years, there was a marketing book on on the nightstand, you know, next to my next to my bed, essentially. I was just having a conversation with Brad Kahn, who's the uh, CMO at of Sprinkler. And he, he was an early reader, age of four, he was reading. And what was he reading? He was reading marketing books. A big pet peeve of his is as marketers, we at some point feel like we've figured it out and we stop actively learning. And he said, that doesn't make any sense. If you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, you constantly have to be reading the trades and staying abreast of the latest and the greatest. You need to be doing that as a marketer as well. And, and I think that's such a simple but powerful piece of advice is study the discipline, read the books, go search out the new material so that you can take your own game to the next level. We also have to be passionate about what you're doing because learning when you're passionate about something, it's, it's fun. You're, you're drawn to it you know, every day. If you have to learn about something you're not passionate about, right, then, it's, then it's hard. I think, Denise, also, though, you're, you're selling yourself a little bit short. My guess is you probably outworked every other person at, at Genesis in order to achieve the success that you achieved? I mean, my job at the time was in many ways, you know, my hobby. I, th- I thought it was a lot of fun. I got to travel the world, you know, almost, you know, every week. And um, I was living abroad. I had, had no family, had, had hardly any friends. So, you know, a big part of my life was about um, the office. And yeah, I was there from probably eight to nine, you know, every every night. But uh it's not something I, I can do today, you know, with a family, but I, I loved it and that made it possible. Has that transition to, um, you know, you obviously have a much more uh, complex life, um, a lot more dimensions to it, but also um, rewarding in a lot of new ways that, that didn't exist before. Was that transition for you hard going from a point where you could put it all into the job to a point where you kind of had to keep the job in a box? You have no choice. That's probably the issue. You, you, you have no choice. Uh, in the past, right, when I was younger and I didn't finish something, you know, at work, I could say, okay, I'm going to work on that presentation uh, tonight instead. Um, I don't have that possibility today. So today it's all about prioritizing. I think you become extremely good as a parent at prioritizing and focusing on, on what matters. And that's something I'm I'm focused on really instilling on the team as well, right? It's all about focusing on what matters at any given time, what is going to have impact and and what doesn't. Our time is the most scarce resource we have. So we have to look every day. I look at, okay, what, what is my schedule today? What, what can I, what should I, what should I do? What shouldn't I do? So it's a a constant um, uh, game of, prioritizing and focusing on, on what's important. There is something about growing up on a farm that helps you appreciate the value of time. I've talked to several, uh, quote unquote, farm children, uh, Jason Andrew over at, at BMC, Mark Cranny um, at Skydio. They, they both grew up on farms and they both say every farmer has 24 hours in a day. And your ability to make the most productive use of that time determines your prosperity in life. And if you can take that lesson into business, it's tremendously valuable. Yeah, that's absolutely right. All right. So you so you uh, had a great run uh, VP at Genesis by the age of 28 and then on 24 from there where you became the CMO. How did you land the CMO 
job and what was the transition you went through to become the CMO? Uh, yeah, so Genesis was acquired uh, right before the big recession in uh, 2008. And I was living um, with my husband in D.C., at that time, and uh, I found that I wanted to move back to California again. I guess I could still juicy fruit. Exactly, we're coming back to juicy fruit. I could still not let go of that juicy fruit, you know, lifestyle after all. And maybe that was also one of the factors why I wanted to join Entrepreneur Four, uh, which is headquartered in San Francisco. Well, living in Northern California, there is nothing like like the beaches in Southern uh, California. But uh, at Entre24, I entered the whole world uh, of MarTech, and that really helped build my demand gen muscles. And I was working with um, Lars Christensen, uh, who was running demand gen there, and uh, who's also leading demand gen for Snowflake today. And uh, yeah, I essentially learned everything you know about Demandian from him, and also all all the partners we had in that you know partner um, ecosystem. And the exciting thing about Demandian coming from more traditional marketing was the ability to see the results and the impact of marketing, being able to track every investment you made and finally being able to um, track your, your, your impact on pipeline as well. That was a big, big, big change uh, from, from, the, from marketing in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s. One of the things that I love about being a marketer in tech, it's a, it's a very diverse role in that you typically own product marketing and demand gen and brand and comms, but there's a particular emphasis on pipeline. And in many companies, many CMOs that I talk to, they say, I own the pipeline. It's not sales. Marketing owns the pipeline. And the reason for that is marketers have the tools to be able to track and quantify what's going on with the pipeline um, from cradle to grave. So my advice often to young marketers is learn the tech, become analytical, and attach your success to your ability to build and convert pipeline. That's critical. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, um, so that was a kind of a key learning from, from on 24 CMO there. And then at that point on to snowflake and snowflake is a, uh, it's a great company. You guys are on a rocket ship right now. For those that don't know snowflake, maybe you can describe what you do and the kind of value you create for customers. Yeah. So also after on 24, um, I joined, um, Apogee as their CMO as well. Okay. And Apogee went, went public in 2015 and then was acquired by Google in um, 2016. So, uh, and that's the time where I joined um, Snowflake as well uh, in, in the spring of 2016. So uh, today, every company needs to be a data-driven company today. But the challenge for most companies is that all their data sits in silos and it's very difficult to do anything with it. And what Snowflake does is that we bring all that data together you know, in one place and anyone who should have access to that data can do so securely, securely. And it's not just within your own organization. You can also extend that data to, to partners without the data actually leaving um, the Snowflake you know, platform. And getting access to data, uh, that was the main challenge you know, I had at every company before. I always had to go to IT, you know, knock on the door, you know, ask for a specific report. And 
they were never so happy, you know, when you, when you ask them that question. And if you were lucky, you got that report three weeks uh, later. And um, today we live in a real-time world and, and data need to be real-time also. So uh, it was really that vision that Snowflake had that really attracted me to join um, the company. If, if Snowflake could realize this vision, it was going to be a game changer. And um, it turned out to be so as well. So Snowflake is a high growth company. You guys are on a tear right now. You're right in the sweet spot of what so many companies need to be successful. What's it like being on the inside of Snowflake? Being here in, on the inside, um, yeah, it's very exciting. But the culture of Snowflake, it's really a highly mission and values driven company that is putting the com- customer at the center of everything we do. And that is really the foundation uh, of our success. I think every company talks about putting customer first and being customer centric, but not everyone is really executing you know, on, on that uh, mission. Here at Snowflake, every conversation you know, we have, it's all about the customer and how we're going to solve their needs you know, better than anyone else. We always think outside in you know, all the time. And it's very easy when you start growing that you start becoming more internally focused. But Snowflake is really all about um, the customer at all time. Uh, there's no com- complacency at all. Uh, it's always about you know finding the red. What are the things you know that can be approved you know all the time? Uh, also, the foundation for our entire culture um, is the values we have, and those eight values we have they were developed um, by our first fifty employees um, in two thousand fourteen, and they're still still with us um, today. Frank Slootman is your chairman and your CEO, and uh, several guests have mentioned him as uh, an icon in their mind, and in some cases, a mentor. Chris Dangan was on recently and talked about his relationship with Frank. Can you talk a little bit about Frank and what his leadership style is? He is very um, direct um, in his style. He's all about, you know, focus. It's all about driving very focused and aligned execution across our company. He's incredibly customer focused. He spends time with customers all week long himself. So when we have those conversations in our leadership meetings, it's all about those real-time conversations that he's having, you know, with our um our our, our customers. And to work for someone like him, it's like going through an MBA. In itself, you know, I I, mm-hmm. I learn, you know, every day um, is watching him and and how he operates. He is um, extremely focused and, and driving the entire organization in a very aligned way towards our mission. He's very very values uh, focused, and he also often talks about that. Many companies, you know, have their values, you know, painted on the walls, but you find out that people are truly not embracing them. So he's very focused on what he calls prosecuting the values, right? You can't have people in the organization who are not living those values. So he's very focused on having everyone um, and all the leaders as being examples on how to execute on those values um, every day. Are there specific things that happen at Snowflake to make sure the employees are prosecuting the values um, is it talked about? Are certain things celebrated? How does that happen? 
usually in, in all, all hands, there's usually a focus, you know, on, on maybe one or two of the values. We were talking about specific examples of how those are being, you know, realized and, and how they're being realized in a customer, you know, context. Um, Frank Slutman, every Monday morning, he sends um, an email, you know, with his thoughts on the business. Maybe he talks about some customers he met the previous week. And often he weaves in, um, you know, our values, you know, into those uh, emails as well. Uh, every person, you know, we, we hire need to, we have discussions with them, you know, about the values. You can't hire anyone if you can't really check, you know, every box on every value um, and um, being sure that everyone, you know, fits those values. It's something on the marketing team that we often talk about, you know, in, in our all hands. And especially this year, this past year, which all been so transactional, it's been so virtual and so focused on execution. It's just so more, more important than ever to, to talk about these things. And um, being in this virtual world, it's quite difficult to, to keep a culture. I'm not saying we, we've been able to keep our culture, but what I'm most worried about moving forward is really how are we all going to be able to build culture in, in a virtual setting? Because there's nothing like getting people together, especially in marketing when you need to, to brainstorm on things and you know, coming up with the next you know, big ideas. It's hard to do that in a virtual environment. I want to zero in on that point about the weekly email. That's such a simple tactic, but uh, personally, I have struggled with, and I know many other executives struggle with this idea of communicating and connecting with the company. And they're always looking for ways to do that more effectively. Sitting down, taking the time once a week to put your thoughts together and send them out has multiple benefits. Number one, it forces you to pull back a little bit from the business and ask yourself what's going on and what really matters. Number two, it provides your company with access to you in a way that they may not otherwise have access to your thoughts and your ideas. And I find the more candid those emails can be, the more well-received they are from, from the company. And then number three, it sets a tone for the rest of the company, which is we value communication, open sharing of ideas and thoughts. I'm doing this. It's valuable and important enough for me to do it. All of you can do it as well. So I, th I think Frank, um, in, his, in his weekly action, teaches a, a great sermon on effective leadership and communication. Yeah, and the values we have, they, they come across in our actions on an everyday basis. And um, often if someone is not a good fit for Snowflake, I mean, those happens, right? In every organization where someone might not be a fit with the culture, I can always find that answer in those eight values. If I have any, any concerns or if there's doubts or if any other leader has, has any doubts, um, they go and look at those values. And I have right. always been able to find the answer to any difficult question I have ahead of me in, the, in those values. That's Denise Pearson, CMO of Snowflake. When we come back, Denise shares her views on the one topic that causes more contention between sales and marketing than any other, pipeline. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Denise Pearson, CMO of Snowflake. Perhaps because of her upbringing in Sweden, Denise has no patience for excuses. 
Her stand and deliver attitude makes her the perfect person to ensure that the pipeline is always tracking the plan. Over the years, she's refined her approach to inspecting the pipe and addressing gaps. Here's her take on what it takes to be successful in this area. Let's dive a little bit then into your marketing playbook. I know Chris is a great partner of yours, the CRO. I'd love to get your perspective on sales and marketing alignment. How important is it and how do you achieve it? I think it's the most important thing uh, in marketing. You can't work in a silo in marketing. And that's often what I see when I work with some of the bigger bigger companies is that marketing, they sit in their silo. They might be sitting in, in, in their own in a building and they might meet with a sales organization one year at the sales kickoff. And I think that's... Uh, um, it's a complete um, disaster. You really need to work as one team together with sales. It starts with me personally being in lockstep with, with Chris uh, Dagnan. And he and I have been working with each other for over five years now. We talk sometimes on a daily basis or Slack on a daily basis. We have you know, meeting on a way, weekly basis. And um, I need to be fully immersed into what is going on in his world in sales at all times. And that needs to trickle down through the entire organization. So out in the field, you know, our local field marketers, they need to be as immersed in, in, in the world of sales in those territories. They're part of all, all the sales meetings and, and all that. And if you don't have that alignment, marketing often go out and do their thing, sales do their thing, and then marketing is a complete waste. Right. As a marketing leader, your role is to maximize impact on revenue with every investment um, you make. And if you go on and, and, and create a program that doesn't really have any impact on sales, it will be a waste. So what we're focused on every quarter is just the calibrating our plans to make sure that everything we do is going to maximize the maximum impact on, on sales at any given uh, time. And if there is one thing we have learned here during the past year, every company around the world is that adaptability is the new superpower of, of business. You need to adapt in a quickie. The annual marketing plans are not effective you know, anymore. You clearly need to have a strategy you know, for the year, but you have to have that ability to adapt you know, quickly to, to new and um, changing customer expectations. I like to refer to what I call the go-to-market pyramid. A pyramid has a, a base, which is a triangle, three points. That's sales, marketing, and customer success. And those three points need to be linked because each of those constituencies brings a different point of view to the, the workplace related to customers and the value that's being created. And if there isn't dialogue happening on a constant basis, formally through meetings on the calendar, informally through ad hoc conversations, you've got a breakdown. And then up, rising up from the base, there's the, the pinnacle of that pyramid, and that's the customer. All three points on that pyramid connect to the customer at the base, connect up to the top. And so you've also each got to have your own connection to the customer. And this is another place where I think that it's easy for marketers to go astray. Salespeople are always going to talk to customers. It's what they do. They, they close them. Customer success, by definition, talks to customers. From a marketing perspective, it's very easy to get that information secondhand. Oh, sales told me this, customer success told me this. If you're not in the field 
regularly talking to customers yourself, you're putting yourself at a huge disadvantage. So I like to always think about that pyramid and the three connected points at the bottom that connect up to the customer at the top. And I find when you've got that, you really have a go-to-market organization that's effective and in balance. You should trademark that, Justin. <laughs> the go-to-market pyramid, you heard, it, you heard it here first. All right, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about pipeline as well. Uh, you are 100% on the pipeline. Tell us a little bit about how pipeline and marketing work at Snowflake. I think one of the most important thing I've learned through the years when it comes to pipeline is that you always have to look at that down to a regional territory and, and rep level. So at Snowflake, we have this no rep left behind policy. And uh, often, right, you look at pipeline and it could look green. The coverage is great. You look at it from a global perspective, but there could be a few deals, right? A few large deals that make that pipeline look so great. But in reality, you might have 50% of your sales team behind on pipeline, right? And they're not so happy. And if they don't, you know, get their commissions, they they will, you know, leave your company and you're going to lose a lot of efficiency, so uh, it's critical um, to look at pipeline down at the rep level. So we built, you know, all all our data and reporting around that. So our local field marketing teams out in the territories they own the pipeline in those regions, and their job is to make sure that no rep is falling behind. And we have designed a set of programs that can kick in with our ABM resources, SDR resources, and demanding resources to help those reps who might be falling behind for whatever reason. It could be a territory that is not maybe as warm, you know, as another territory, for instance. But that's that's just incredibly important to not look at the pipeline. You know, US is doing great or Europe is doing great. You're not doing great from a pipeline perspective if not every single rep is in uh, is in green. It's easy also to look in aggregate at results, and if the overall timeline results are positive, it's easy to, to pacify yourself and say, I'm doing my job. I find the best marketers, though, take it to the next level, look at a segment-by-segment segment basis, and determine which, which segments aren't tracking. And I like what you said. I think that really reflects one of the hallmarks of your success in working with sales. If a segment is red, there are reps that are suffering. And it's your responsibility as the marketer to step in and help those reps. Even if the overall business is prospering, you have a group of people that are suffering. I also like the fact that you essentially have a service catalog and you can draw upon that to help those reps that are struggling and help get that red back into the green. And we, all, we have fancy snow names for all those programs. So there's one program specifically called the Blizzard Program. So the Blizzard program kicks in any new rep at Snowflake. They get to be a part of, of Blizzard. Or if there's any rep that is somehow falling behind a pipeline, then the Snowflake Blizzard um, you know, kicks in. All right. I, I, I love the branding as well. That's where the marketer comes in. So we get, we get our branding in there along with our pipe gen. It all fits together in one, one fancy pot of stew. Yes. Um, I know another thing that's really important to you is diversity, finding a diverse group of people, building a diverse team. I'd love for you to share a little bit more your thoughts on why that's so important and some of the tactics that you've employed to build that diverse team you aspire to have. I think it actually starts with um, self-awareness. Um, what I've learned is that um, I've 
read a lot about this, this too, is that self-awareness is probably the most important attribute you know, of, of a leader. And um, as a leader, you have to know what your own strengths and weaknesses are. And this can take time, right? In your 20s, you don't know that. Today, of course, there are all kind of great tests and everything you can do to help you know, with that awareness um, as well. And the most important thing you can do as a leader is to build a diverse team around you. So if I look at my, my direct reports, no one has the same strength as me. I'm looking for people that completely complement each other and complement you know, my own um, strengths. I believe in focusing on strengths rather than weaknesses. I think when I grew up in business in the 90s, there were so many conversations about weaknesses, right? People had the annual review meetings to talk about weaknesses. I think today we know that um, it's all about focusing on, on, your, on your strength. If you want to outperform everyone as a company, it's really about maximizing um, the superpowers and strengths of everyone in your organization. So, um, and that's one part that I love about, you know, building teams is really about, again, identifying the strength of others and making sure that everyone is in the right position where they can um, use those superpowers. So it was, of course, very important to embrace all differences, so differences in terms of ethnicity and gender and, and all that, but um, it's also diversity of mind as well. And everyone is so much happy if they can focus on their own strength. And the thing with strength is that most people don't realize their own, their own strength because they come so naturally to us. Everyone mm -hmm. else sees them. I talk to you now, I can clearly see some unique strengths, you know, you know coming out. But most of us don't see them ourselves. We take them for granted. But if I can have a team where everyone is in the absolute right position, focusing on their strength, that's where we're getting, that's where we, how we can continue to, to outperform as a team. I was talking to Jen Grant, who was the CMO over at Box and also at Looker. She said, those are very different companies. You've got Aaron running box, very charismatic young leader. And she said, the strategy there is put him in the spotlight and get him out as much as possible because he generated buzz so much to say, and people were fascinated by him. Looker was a very different culture. They built a rock solid product that people loved and the technology was uh, unassailable. And so she said, I needed to really assess the strength of the company and build a marketing strategy around the strength of the company rather than trying to run the same play again and again at different places. So I love what you said, um, and I'm glad that we've started to recognize it's less about trying to turn weaknesses into strengths and more about just taking your strengths and, and running hard with them. It's a great insight. So um, if, if my math is correct, you have taken four companies public at this point. What advice do you have for CMOs at pre-IPO companies? You really want to make sure that at least a year ahead of that IPO, uh, that you have predictability into your pipeline. And it takes a while to, to build that in a well-oiled machine, right? In the early days, you, you, don't, you don't have that. So um, that is something that is going to be incredibly important. When you're a public company, it's all about 
you know, beating those targets and um, exceeding expectations. Again, it comes back to the things we talked about before, making sure that no rep is left behind and that everyone in the company is kind of out, outperforming essentially. So you want to make sure that you have that predictability um, into your business and how you're building um, your pipeline. A lot of times, especially when you're at a pre-IPO company, you look at the large competitors and think about all the disadvantages you have. What advantages does a small pre-IPO company have relative to some of the bigger uh, incumbents that are out there? Speed, for sure. I mean, speed is a competitive advantage. And that's also something that sort of keeps me up at night, right? I mean, that was my competitive advantage five years ago when we um, put a marketing program into the market, right? We could do that, you know, in, in a week or 24 hours, right? When you're at the size where we are now, you can't do things in, in 24 hours. So it's more how do you keep the sense of urgency and speed within the organization, that you have a structure um, that enables you to run fast. I think also you're in a position to be a little bit more bold in terms of the things that you say in the marketplace, um, the risks that you take. You know, there's there's less on the line. And uh, as a small company, uh, people are paying less attention to you. So if you're bold, um, sometimes you can grab the spotlight and that works to your advantage. And you know, if you fire off a shot that might go astray, so be it. Um, you know, it's it's a small company, and and people are going to understand that. Yeah, as a startup, you you have to be bold um, to stand out. But most important, at the same time, is of course that you have integrity, um, mm-hmm. that you tell the truth, because also one of the most important things is is trust, right? Trust between you and your customer is everything. Um, that's how we make the choices we make, right? We, we choose brands that we trust and, um, trust is something you have to build, uh, when you're a startup. So integrity and, uh, really always driving, you know, value, uh, is so important. You know, I've seen an interesting evolution with companies, the, the very, very early stage startups, they, they rely on their vision to get people excited. And then you get some VCs in, and if there are high quality VCs, you can talk about the VCs and the money that's backing you as validation. But ultimately, every company needs to matriculate to the point where they talk about their customers. That is the ultimate validation. If you can say, I have company X and Y and Z, and here's how I've helped them, that is where you need to get. And these companies that struggle to be able to tell those stories and consistently add to those stories have not really figured out um, what they need to be a mature company that can be successful over the long term. Yeah, and adding on to that, I think the ultimate validation is when customers talk about you. Yeah. That that's that's what you're going for. That's Absolutely. that's where you get the multiplier effect, you know, of, of all your marketing. Well, Denise, the time has flown by. We went from juicy fruit gum to taking companies public and making them wildly successful. Last question for you, as you look back across your life and your career, what's that one thing that's made the biggest difference for you? I think when it's all uh, said and done, it's about the people, the relationships that I've made in my career. Uh, So many people have helped me over the years 
And I've learned so much, you know, from them. And um, my career has taken many twists and turns from Sweden to the United States. And I wouldn't be where I am today without support from this relationship. So I look for ways that I can support people and give up, give back and pass that on. Well, that's wonderful advice. And uh, I've heard that so many times. It rings so true. Thank you for what you've contributed to the marketing community, the relationships that you've built and how you've given back over the course of your career. Thanks for having me on the show, Justin. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.